Welcome to The Dreaming. I'm Joe Fulgen. I'm Sasha Smolders. This is The Sandman, Issue 13, Men of Good Fortune. Let's take a look at the cover. The one note that I have from Dave McKean himself is that, yes, the one human on the cover, along with the skeletons, is modeled by Neil Gaiman himself. What? Yep, that's Neil. I didn't notice there was a human. I just saw skeletons. Way over in the left, it's actually yeah. got hair. So that's Neil. That's Neil. Hmm. That is Neil's late 80s hair. February 1990, <laughs> early 90s. Well, photo was probably taken in 89. So I just assumed he would have the same hair as, as the Sandman. Just be oh. the same, like, beautiful, terrifying mullet. I, well, it's, it's, I don't think it's terrifying. It's a very dramatic mullet, you know? Neil's or the Sandman's? The Sandman's. Well, at, at the I don't end know of, about Neil's. Oh, you're talking about the end at the end of this issue. Yeah, Yes, for sure. I am like, talking about the end of this talking issue. Talking about the end of this issue, because normally he doesn't have that, it seems. But that That's is like, that is a super punk rock mullet. Let's We're at the cover here. Let's sure. look at the cover. What have we got? We've got some more stuff, right? We have what looks like a broken clock face. Right, little pieces yeah, of it scattered it looks, around. Looks like it shattered like a like a plate. Mm-hmm. And uh, some text. It almost looks like a corroded scroll or something, or a corroded book. Yeah, passage of time, clock being broken. This is about a guy who can't die. We've got some death stuff on here. What's the circle on the right? That's the clock oh, that's face the clock. that's broken. Yeah, you can see one piece of it. <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, it's art. There's some art right there, mm-hmm. with uh, with some death and uh, broken time stuff going on there. Arrested time is that the symbol for immortality? The broken clock. The skeletons seem very animate, as well. Yeah. Do they? I definitely the one on the far right. Like it's like I get that they're skeletons and they're dead, mm-hmm. but they just. I think that they could be posed in such a way that would make them look less lively. Hmm. Yeah, know? I guess. I, I mean, it looks kind of like they're standing up. We've got a, a we've got Neil standing up there on the left. So, mm-hmm. well, one has its back turned, and the other one's face is sort of in shadow, but mm-hmm. which makes it look like it's kind of glaring at you from from across the room. Mm-hmm. And then the other one kind of look like looks like it's scoffing and tossing its hair. It had hair. <laughs> Like, ah, <laughs> the hair toss. I don't <sighs> think that's what's going on. I think hair toss is a very low probability move for a skeleton. Mm, well, I'm not saying it's impossible that that's what it's doing, but it's just you know, low probability. Well, it could be at is... the end of the hair toss, and the skeleton could have been wearing a wig, and the toss could have sent the hair flying. I, that's I'm telling you, it's possible, but it's mm-hmm. very low probability. Okay, well. Since we'll never know, both possibilities are probably correct. Maybe Dave McKean will listen to this and uh, write in and let us know. Maybe he'll listen to it and what? he'll like my idea so much, he'll retcon it and say it was right, even if it wasn't. It's That is always a possibility. Mm. Special edition Sandman <laughs> draws the hair on with CG. Ah, yeah. Like George Lucas. Okay, let's get in. Page one. We know that this is 1389, because later on he says, I'll see you in 100 years, which is 1489. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got some people in the background talking about some stuff. Third poll tax in three years. What else could we have done? 
All I'm saying is when Ball and Tyler were killed, the spirit of the working man died with them. Those are both references to the peasant revolt. The poll tax is a flat tax. Okay. So the governments at the time would go, oh, crap, we need some more money. They couldn't do deficit spending. Mm -hmm. So they'd just go, oh, we've got an emergency thing we need to spend money on. They would institute this poll tax, which is every single person, rich or poor, has to pay this much money. Oh, and they no. just send people around and go pay up. You got to pay up years. We're, we're going to war. Everybody's got to pay this much. So they had all these poll taxes. And finally, the poor people rose up in this thing called the Peasant Revolt. Mm -hmm. uh, and it happened back in 1380. Well, back in 1381, eight years before this. This is 1389. And Ball and Tyler were kind of the heads of that Peasant Revolt. So that's who they're talking about. They're talking about there being a poll tax and the people rising up against that. What could we have done? But when they were killed, the spirit of the working man died with them. Mm. Yeah. A couple things I noticed about the room they're in. There's a thatched roof, mm -hmm. and the walls are sort of uh, like stacked river stones. Yeah. And this is my first time noticing this, even though this will be my third th third, third read through, I guess, with mm -hmm. you. Um, because I sit down before we record and read it through twice, right before we record. Yeah. It. Uh, but I noticed that there's a a is it called a brazier? Um, mm -hmm. burning in the corner there, like yeah. just just off, almost off of the just right in the middle of shot. the room. It, and they reference it later yeah. when he talks about chimneys. And yeah, uh, yeah I didn't read, notice that at first, but that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, uh, that that's in there. The two popes is referencing the Western Schism. In mm. 1377, Pope Gregory XI returned mm -hmm. the papacy to Rome from Avignon, where it had been for almost 70 years. They were like, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to go up to Avignon. Uh, when Gregory died in 1378, the Romans rioted to demand that the next pope be Roman. No Roman candidate came forward, so Urban VI was elected, who, while not Roman, was at least Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, but Urban, while he had, was actually well-respected uh, before he was pope, as pope was suspicious, reformist, and prone to outbursts of anger, so a group of cardinals moved back to Avignon and elected Clement VII as their pope. Ooh. And all of a sudden, all of these European monarchies had to decide which pope they were following, oh. which, of course, led to a whole bunch of diplomacy, right? Well, mm -hmm. pope, if we're going to stay with you, what are you going to, you know, that kind of thing was, I guess, going on okay. at the time. And people were saying, there's two popes. This is a sign of the end times. Yeah. Right? Which pope won? Uh, what happened is uh, it actually lasted for quite some time until one died and then they it, it was through this weird it got kind of weird and boring and diplomatic because okay. because they really didn't differ that much except each side was calling the other more corrupt than the other. Uh, no God said I had to lead. Yeah. No and God it, said I had to lead. So it got down to arguments about the technicality of the the church law mm -hmm. about... So they were like, no, you're not allowed to just go off and elect your own pope because we've got the rules how that works. Therefore, your papacy was invalid. And then they said, no, but this rule says that for the good of the church, we're allowed to act how we see fit. And that's how we're acting. So our papacy was therefore valid. And so they had all these arguments after a bunch of the popes died and were replaced. And eventually the two sides came to an agreement. And I can't I don't think there was actually an active pope at that time. And they finally just went, nope, now this is the pope. 
And I think over time they have declared the popes of the Avignon papacy to mm-hmm. be the, quote, anti-popes, Ooh. meaning false popes, that, that they're not real. But it's I, it's up in the air. It's not like either one of them was truly evil or or more evil than the other, as far as I could tell from looking up the... Uh, it's not like they have an evilometer. You know, you'd think if there was that kind of dispute... Um, you think that, that God would just show up and say, yo, guys, this one's my Pope. You know, that's the logical way that that should have sorted itself out. Yeah, that is what should happen. God should yeah. show up and tell him because so many people are living not knowing which Pope for yeah. so long. Yeah. yeah. So God should have been like, yo, bros, this guy, he's my Pope, bro. That other Pope, like he's cool, but he's not my buddy. Like we're not, we're not tight. Yeah. So yeah. that lasted until about 1417. So oh, it lasted wow. about 30 years. Wow. 35 years or so. Sandman and his sister, Death. Yeah. They show up in this, uh, would it be called a tavern back then, do you think? Or We can call it a tavern, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure what the right word would be, but yeah, it's a, it's a public house. Let's call it that. It's a public house. Okay. Well, they show up and I don't know if I'm reading it. I guess my initial thing when I look at them is I think they both look like they're from a religious order, but maybe that's just that they're wearing clothes that look a little more expensive. Yeah, my feeling is that they are better off than the majority of the people there. Mm-hmm. Like that she they're... looks like she's wearing a nun's habit, but I think that's also just sort of what women wore. Yeah, I think that's just woman's clothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like something that uh, Maid Marian in the old Robin Hood stories would wear. Yeah, except for the onk. Except for the onk she's got around her neck. Yeah. And he looks like he has his ruby around his neck. He does. In fact, he has his ruby present in every costume except for the the modern era one. Mm. Also, his hat looks like a pie. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that style of hat is called. I'm going to call it the pie hat. Yeah, The Jeffrey in this page is Jeffrey Chaucer. I thought so. Author of the Canterbury Tales and famous for establishing English as a legitimate language for literature at a time when it was thought only French or Latin was worthy. Langue des travaillistes means language of labor, which mm-hmm. at the time was the English. The aristocracy were the Normans, the, the French, mm-hmm. basically, who had come over and taken over at the time. And the English were just all the working class serfs. So their language was not seen worthy to actually have literature. And Chaucer of the Canterbury Tales was a big sign of when that change came around, when English started to become worthy of that. Piers Plowman is a narrative poem also of the time that by William Langland, and uh, it actually contains one of the first known mentions of, the, of Robin Hood and his stories. Oh. Yep. The joke that's on this page and gets repeated, a, I think, a couple of times throughout Hunting for Rabbits Again, Vicar, mm-hmm. seems to just kind of be the end of a ribald joke that Neil has invented, uh, which shows that there may be an audience for filthy rhymes about pilgrims, right? It's just... The Canterbury Tales does have a monk who really enjoys hunting for rabbits. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's hmm. probably the, that's meant to, to say that this person is wrong. Hmm. The people do want filthy tales and rhyme about pilgrims because you can tell from the people in the background saying that. That's, so the- that's my guess. Oh, also on this page, uh, flux is cholera, which has diarrhea as a major symptom. Oh. Mm. So we've got Hob Gadling here. Mm-hmm. Hob being short for Robin. Oh. Or Robert. Oh, cool. Yeah. Rob. Rob. Hob. Hob. We yeah, it's bring like, that back. Yeah, it's like Bob for, for Robert. 
and dick for richard going to those hard, harder sounds it's weird i agree english is weird <laughs> over on page three he mentions the wandering jew yeah you know? what is that from the wandering jew is actually an old legend we're not entirely sure where it comes from. There are a few lines in the Bible uh, that people say that the legend may have arisen from, but nothing is conclusive. And it's a, a legend that concerns a Jew who taunted Jesus on the way to the crucifixion, and they were then cursed to walk the earth until the second coming. Oh. Yeah. And Ahasuerus which is mentioned as his name here, is actually a name that's used several times in the Bible. It's also applied to the wandering Jew, notably by Kant in his The Only Possible Argument in Support of a Demonstration of the Existence of God. So it wasn't uncommon for him to be called Ahasuerus, but Ahasuerus is not always the name of the wandering Jew. Hmm. And Hobb is basically saying, look, everybody dies just because you think you have to die. Yeah, that's a weird theory on death. You just, it's only because you believe in it. He's kind of got the secret about living forever, <laughs> right? The secret is everybody just thinks they should they should die so that they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, death is giving him a knowing look. Yeah. She's like, sure, buddy. Yeah, and she's the one encouraging Dream to get out and meet people, right? Yeah, and isn't it's kind of it, cute. But isn't it kind of coincidental that there's a guy going i could live forever in the the pub that she brings her brother dream to she is death he is dream he dreams of living forever and not dying it's almost like that because he is saying this they go there oh yeah i guess that makes sense i mean it seems like she wants him to be not only in the tavern but listening to the people who are there like paying attention to them and hearing their stories. Like he's become too, maybe at this point in his story, he's become too distant from humanity. And Mm -hmm. she thinks that that's not good. That's what she does say. Yeah, get out and meet them. I just think maybe it would be good for you to see them on their terms instead of yours. Since he's only seen people in in their dreams. dreams. Yeah, when they're unfettered by the real world. Mm. Yeah, and the uh, word swive does mean what you think it means. It means to have intercourse with. Hmm. Women to swive. You lot may die. I expect you will, because you're stupid. Not like me, though. Not like me, though. And he's giving the thumbs up. I know. He's, well, he's pointing at himself. With his thumb. With his thumb. This guy. This who, guy. Who's got one thumb pointing in his own direction is going to live forever? This guy. <laughs> Hob Gadling. It might be interesting very well i don't think she has to be convinced like that knowing look it was this is kind of her idea she led him here plus this is the kind of tricks that happen when brothers and sisters go to taverns together Mm. joffrey for a diplomat to judgment la nature humaine that translates to you badly judge human nature Mm -hmm. you're a bad judge of human nature also uh, death calls dream little brother here yeah she called him big brother before Did she? Yeah. Oh. So we know that she's actually the oldest. Mm. She showed up first. That makes sense. But he's taller. So I think that that's why she said big brother that one time. Okay. Because he was taller. Like she was specifically looking up at him. Mm. A spittered is a young stag. That's mentioned down at the bottom. The English were born to hunt spittered and stag. 
Mm. And uh, if they take that away from us, so that's is that the peasants saying that if they're not allowed to hunt anymore? Yeah, yeah, we're English. We should be allowed to hunt deer, right? Mm-hmm. And if they take if they take that away from us, will be John Ball has rung in your bell once more. John Ball was again one of the leaders of the peasants revolt that had happened previously. Mm. And that quote rung in your bell is actually a reference to a letter of the time about the aforementioned peasant revolt's leader that was a call to action. John Ball greeteth you well all, and doth you to understand he hath rung in your bell. Meaning he has made the call. The bell is ringing, we all have to rise up. What the person at the end is saying is, if they don't let us hunt deer, we're just all going to rise up again. Dream goes over to the table Mm -hmm. and basically says like, so I hear you're not going to die. Why don't we meet up in a hundred years in the same place? And I think all the guys at the table think he's making fun of him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, that's a great joke. Way to call him on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Hob is like, yeah, man, I'll meet you here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of them says, and I'm Pope Urban. The other one says, oh, and I'm Pope Clement. Those are the two popes of the time that we mm-hmm. mentioned before. <laughs> King Dick, who he says is thick. They're thick as King Dick is Richard II, who's the king at the time. Mm-hmm. As thick as King Dick. That I, I might become a new... Like, I think that could become a new colloquial saying. Really? Yeah. Almost 700 years later? Yeah, bringing it back. All right. Bringing it back. Yeah, bringing it back old school. Mm-hmm. So over to the next page, and bam, it's 1489. And now they have a hearth? Is that what that's a called? A hearth. A hearth. Mm-hmm. Now they have a hearth. Yeah, big chimney. Who are you, a wizard? A saint? A Hmm. demon? I believe, Joe, you have been uh, called a wizard before for someone not believing whether or not you've aged. Yeah, I did have somebody, when they found out how old I was, they shouted out, are you a wizard? Yeah. Secret is, Joe really is a wizard. The secret is hide in a basement away from the sun and, (laughs) and don't smoke cigarettes, I think, and don't have children. Those three things combined, oh, and probably lucky genetics. Mm -hmm. It's all it takes. Just all four of those combined together. (laughs) Plus, be a wizard. That is just a coincidence. There are plenty of wizards who age. Mm. Have you seen liches? <laughs> Can't say I have. It's because they hide out because they're gross and mm. aged. They shouldn't hide, though. It's it's ageism mm. to judge somebody for wasting away to a skeleton. <laughs> I think that uh, Dream's outfit and hairstyle have improved in this yeah. century. Yeah, I would agree. Although the ruffle collar is, is a thing. It's like a little ruffly thing. He's got the fur trim around the side. He's got the ruby. Mm-hmm. Rooms are a watery discharge from the mucous membranes, and catars are an inflammation of those membranes. Ooh. Uh, 1489 would be about the right time for playing cards to appear uh, in this part of Europe, although I'm not sure people in a common tavern would be all that familiar with them. Mm. But certainly playing cards uh, by the early 1400s, early to mid-1400s, was becoming very popular in the courts of Europe. I like how in this one there's this older guy who's Hmm. grumbling about having chimneys having a a hearth and a chimney and oh it's making everything worse and it was all it was better back in the old day made the houses stronger and all this and this young guy who actually lived it (laughs) is like uh no chimneys are brilliant your eyes aren't watering all the time you know it just reminds me of yeah people who complain about things today right right not freezing from the holes in the wall if you go back and look at the earlier ones they're actually what look like windows 
but they're just holes in the wall. They have to have all the time. Or you otherwise have to have they them because there's a big fire in the middle of the room. Yeah. Right? And in that first one, there's even some smoke drawn huh. across them. If you go back a few pages, you can see occasionally smoke drifting across everybody. It's kind of hard to imagine having built structures and not putting some form of chimney in. Well, they didn't really know what it was to do that. I, I know, but it's just there are so many more non-permanent structures that figured that out in different parts of the world so much mm. earlier, like um, like teepees. <laughs> like <laughs> you can, the, well, the they smoke just, goes out of that. They just put the yeah, they put the hole in the roof, but it's yeah. still smoky inside. But they go, it goes up and out instead of floating well, out into your room and. Yeah, it does in these places too. They would have a hole in their thatched roof. Yeah. Right? But still, you need to have the holes in the sides to draw in the fresh air. Mm. And then that goes up and out, right? I guess. Yeah. And with the chimneys, it's just much, much better. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you that. (laughs) It's like you build a little room in the side of your room. Right. Over on page eight, Hob mentions, sometimes I've fought for York, sometimes for Lancaster. Yeah, so what he's been doing the last few years. Yeah, York and Lancaster are the two houses involved in the War of the Roses, fighting Mm. sporadically from 1455 to 1487. And then he says, that's been quiet for a few years now since Richmond got in, King Henry as is. Henry VII was the Earl of Richmond prior to being king. So that's who he's talking about. So what Hobbes been doing, you can see in the first... In the first hundred years has really just been being a, a, a soldier for hire and a mercenary mm-hmm. because he can't die. It's kind of the most obvious thing you go for, I guess. Yeah. Later on, I imagine he tires of the violence. Yeah. Well, it's hard work, right? Yeah. But here he says he started in a new trade working with a friend of his. His It won't last, but it's a new trade. It's called printing. I guess it also shows how... In the first hundred years, at least, of his, mm-hmm. well, 130 or whatever years of his life, upward social mobility doesn't exist, right? Like, he's talking about how the only reason he can get into this new trade is because there isn't a guild for it yet. Right, yeah, yeah. Um. So you were not able to, at least that's my impression, is you were not able to take a trade unless you were accepted into a guild for that trade. Right. So you just couldn't move upward. Yeah. Socially. If you were a peasant, you were stuck that way. So for him, even though he's lived 100 years, because he was a soldier, he was always going to be a soldier Mm -hmm. in that system. Yeah. Never be a real demand for it, mind you. Hard work. (laughs) But beats the hell out of rotting to maggots in the ground. Beats being dead. Now, does he mean a printing press? Yeah. He's talking about the printing press. Mm, That would be hard work. Yeah. Back in those days, back when it first started, for sure. But as we'll find out later, very uh, profitable for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've jumped forward 100 years. 1589. And, uh, dream has gone full prince. Yep. Yeah, it's you're right. perfect. The hair, the hair especially. Mm-hmm. The facial hair is good. The outfit is amazing. Purple. But the the hair and the facial hair together just seals the deal on this. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> And we have uh, the kit sitting there with who we learn later is William Shakespeare. Good old Billy Shears. Is Christopher Kit Marlowe. Marlowe mm-hmm. was the preeminent English playwright of the time immediately before Shakespeare's rise, and the two were known to be friends. Uh, Shakespeare's sonnets actually mention a poet that he's jealous of, and mm. many people believe this to be Marlowe because Marlowe was 
it's all highly respected. Mm. Marlowe's death was kind of uh, surprising and shadowy, and people aren't exactly sure how it happened. I want to point out, too, on the first image of this transition into this time, mm-hmm. the tavern itself has changed. It's been mm-hmm. completely rebuilt. Uh, no more of the stone, the river stone walls. Still has a sort of thatched roof, but it's not a flat roof. It's it's a, a or peaked roof. A peaked roof. Peaked roof, thank you. Mm-hmm. And also, so dramatically, Dream is just tossing a rose mm-hmm. in this first one. <laughs> like, you just had a rose and he just tossed it. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what that reference is. Maybe Neil's going to write a story about before this and he's going to have a rose. I don't know. Ooh. In that first panel with... Shakespeare and Marlowe, he's mentioning that for one's art and for one's dreams, one may consort and bargain with darkest powers. Mm. That That's Faustus, basically, that he's talking about. And this is a really interesting thing. The Sandman annotations pointed this out. I didn't notice this. Shakespeare is speaking in iambic pentameter through this whole thing. Is he? Yeah, that would be lines of verse with five metrical feet, each consisting of one short or unstressed syllable followed by one long or stressed syllable. Well, Kit, your theme, as I saw, it is this, that for one's art and for one's dreams, one may consort and bargain with dark with the darkest powers. Mm. Powers as one syllable. That's why it's got the apostrophe in there. And then it fits. Tis so. Hmm. Hmm. Clever. Yeah. Very clever. And we've got Hob, who's doing well. This is about as jolly as he gets. He's got mm. a big grin on his face all the way through it. And he's happy because he's been making lots of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, he's invested in shipyards. Last time we spoke, I was working with Billy Caxton. I made some gold from that. Billy Caxton is William Caxton, who is thought to be the first Englishman to introduce a printing press into England oh. in 1476 uh, and was the first English retailer of printed books. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then he put that into Henry Tudor's shipyards. Henry Tudor would be Henry VIII, King of England, until about 1547. I had an English teacher, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Bill Poppy, a uh, fantastic man, and he called Henry VIII, uh, in my English class, he called him a cheese-gobbling fatty pants, and oh. it is my favorite description I've ever heard of Henry VIII. I don't see either of those things as a bad thing. I'm no. cheese-gobbling as well. I love gobbling cheese, but mm. specifically, that is what he called Henry VIII, and, okay. uh, which, I mean, I thought he might have mentioned all the beheading of the wives, but I think mm-hmm. that, was his, that was his main criticism of him. And the mentioned at the end of this page, when Fat Henry done for the monasteries, that's talking again, Fat Henry being Henry VIII, mm-hmm. big cheese gobbling fatty pants. That refers to Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, where the monarchy, the Church of England that he had formed, took over and sold off or reassigned church property. Mm-hmm. Well, he had to. He needed to get divorces. <laughs> yeah, that's why he started his own church, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pop is also doing well in the romance and family department. Mm-hmm. He's got a girl, and she's pregnant with his son. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, dude... That's what? not going to go as well as you want it to. Like, he's immortal, and, he, and he's going to yeah. have kids. Yeah. Well, his first in over 200 years, and I'm sure he's had lots of attempts at it. Hmm. So maybe he can... One, maybe it's not actually his. Two, oh. two, maybe he can only have a kid, you know, every once in a while, it's- so that he never overwhelms the 
Gene Bull. What bothers me? Well, it's this idea that he's fallen in love mm-hmm. and it seems so short-sighted of him. He doesn't at once, he like doesn't at any point in this conversation talk about how he's going to outlive them. Right. Obviously. You know? And it's not mentioned at all, the mortality of his offspring or his wife. Yeah. So it seems extremely short-sighted of him. Although he seems to be a, a kind of short-sighted person, so... <laughs> For someone who plans to live forever, he is well, rather short-sighted. What is he supposed to do? Not fall in love? Not be with somebody? Sure. I just, you know. No. I'm just pointing out. <laughs> yeah. No. You know. Well, we'll get that in the future, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That might come back around. And we get some more from Kit Marlowe and William Shakespeare here. Mm-hmm. Uh, more wine, more ale, and bust me quick, my sweet. That's iambic pentameter right there. Don't get handsy with the waitress. Don't flirt with the waitress. Well, she's smiling. I think he knows her. Mm. Oh, okay. And we have Marlo saying, I'll stick with boys, my horned actresses. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been accusations of Marlo being a homosexual. This is probably not true, is what it seems to be like. In Marlo's writing, he seems to write about men with men uh, sympathetically. Okay. So he could just be an ally. Like he's refer- he references actual homosexual relationships in a sympathetic light. Mentions historical man-man things, you know, okay. in his like listing off of a few romances or something. Mm-hmm. So like doesn't exactly come out and go, hey, this is okay. Okay. But uh, but there these things that people say, oh, this means that he's actually gay, mm. could mean is just like, no, he's just straight, but doesn't think it's wrong so he includes it in the love part maybe he has gay again maybe he has gay friends i mean maybe he's bisexual plenty or maybe of he's bisexuals bi. exist all over we the world we don't know but it's as much as uh, here it's being put with him very definitely saying i'll stick with boys mm-hmm. the history doesn't prove that out we can't prove that that's true at all and at this time in history all female parts in theater were being in england were yeah. being played by men usually young men mm-hmm. uh, Sweet Kit, the play I gave you, did you read? And Kit did, and he reads off, which is mm-hmm. what is actually the very beginning of Henry the Sixth, Act oh. One, Scene One, Part One. Hung be the heavens with black, yield day to night, comets importing, change of times and states. Yeah, Henry the Sixth, all of it, parts one, two, and three were his first play to come okay. out. I looked up, tried to look up the Shakespeare chronology. Mm-hmm. The first start in uh, 1590, which would be the year after this, mm. 1590 to 1591, and most put Henry VI Part Two and Three as coming out or being released first. Okay. Uh, but it could be Neil is saying he worked on part one first. This is the very beginning of him writing. Mm-hmm. And he's shown his first attempts at writing to Christopher Marlowe. His first draft. Yeah, first draft. It always and takes you longer to put the first one out, right? Yeah, and it's it's not great. No. And at, at this point, Shakespeare was basically just an actor. Yeah. Right? He hadn't released anything. Nobody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hobb as well at the top of this page is talking about how the queen came and stayed with him. And it was very expensive. Yeah. The queen herself slept at my house last summer. Yeah. Life is so rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things are good. That can't possibly get any worse for him. There's no way. Now, Kit's leg is in a cast. Yeah. Not sure about that. Will Shakespeare, who is he? Acts a bit, wrote a play. Hmm. Is he good? No, he's crap. <laughs> uh, early on, Shakespeare. Shakespeare's first few were not all that good. 
Yeah. He was kind of copying what other people were doing. He kind of really was a wannabe, they, they, they say. This is kind of where the William Shakespeare didn't write his own stuff comes from because they're oh. like, look at how much better he got. Well, let's well, just like, learning. yeah, look at how much better he got. Exactly. Yeah. Some people aren't just naturally savants. Like they <laughs> have to find their voice. They have to learn to write. For sure. For sure. And Neil, on the other hand, says, no, no, he met Dream in a tavern mm. and did some kind of deal with him. Yeah, now why would Dream want to make a deal with uh, Will Shakespeare? Who knows? Create new dreams to spur the minds of men. Is that your will? Then let us talk. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess Dream does care a great deal about stories. Stories are important. Mm -hmm. And He's the prince of stories. Well, yeah, William Shakespeare didn't invent the stories that he told. No. He took stories that already existed and told sort of the definitive version of them. In, yeah, in English way. for the yes. play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, for like sure. he ended up writing the definitive version of many of those stories that had already existed, mm-hmm. um, at least as far as theater is concerned. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Everything to live for and nowhere to go but up, says mm. Hob. I feel that way when I eat uh, the bread that you make, Joe. Everything to live for and nowhere to go but up? Yeah, uh-huh. white bread, and also I would kill for it. Oh. Mm. <laughs> to know <laughs> next page 1689 uh, I have a question what is dream smoking oh I don't know what did people smoke back in 1689 I, I'm guessing tobacco okay I, I like I guess shoes. somebody else is smoking there I guess they offered you that there maybe that's a, a I could I tr- couldn't find it if that was a thing of the time like if it's an opium den or something no or just smoke pipe tobacco then? would oh, be pipe. the thing that everybody would get at a pub or something mm. like it looks like it's become kind of more high class now right oh yeah well they're also all of their clothes seem to be i mean they're it's the english version of it but mm-hmm. they are very influenced by the french aristocracy yeah gentrification has happened mm. right we've got it's turned from you know a small circle of huts that has this one public house to one building in a small hamlet to now it's a fine establishment in a larger city. And they have oil lamps, mm-hmm. um, both uh, mounted on the walls and on their tables. And they're not drinking out of tankards anymore. They're drinking out of wine glasses. Yeah. Income Hob hasn't been a good 100 years. No, he's much thinner too. If you notice, the old Hob was, was uh, chubbier the year before. When he was uh, rich and yeah. able to eat lots and whatnot. But yeah. this hob is uh, very thin and apparently he can still waste away. He just won't die. <laughs> and uh, the two of the guys at the door, they're not planning to let hob into the, right. into the place at all. Give just, him a shot. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he's hardly dressed for dinner. Yeah. But Dream just tells him to let him in. And here he comes. Mm. Yeah. Do you know how hungry a man can get if he doesn't die but doesn't eat? That sounds awful. Yeah, we get the story about Eleanor. She died in childbirth. He doesn't even remember what she looked like anymore. He pawned her portrait 50 years ago. And then Robin died when he was only 20 years old. And because he was grieving over the loss of his wife and son, he stuck around in the same place for too long, didn't do that whole thing he does where he goes away and pretends to become his own son. Mm -hmm. And so they tried to drown him as a witch. Yep. That's bad. 
He fought for the king in Parliament's war. Big mistake. Mm. He's talking about Oliver Cromwell in Parliament. They took over England for a while during the 1600s. The monarchy was eventually restored, but Hobb picked the losing side. Mm, okay. I've hated every second of the last 80 years. Every bloody second. And do you still wish to live? Do you not seek the respite of death? <gasps> and yet it's still, it's still funny to him. Are you crazy? Death's a mug's game. I've got so much to live for. And yet he's hated the last 80 years. Yeah. And then all he needs to be is have someone poke at him and say, well, it's up to you. Do you want to die? And he's still like, no. No. What? Life's awesome. It's better than dying. And in the next hundred years, things do get better for him. It's Mm -hmm. almost as if this conversation with Dream turns him around. You know, It might, yeah. I think so. Or just the way things work. Mm. Right. He's had a down 80 years. He's been depressed. You know, just every, eventually you're going to get over it. And now, things are going to pick up. The woman at the table wearing, she has a mask. Oh, on, on, the, on page 16, the previous page before. Yes. Yeah, so she's we on, she's on the, yeah, she's on the previous page. And then she's mm-hmm. also on the, the final page of this point in time, especially on the final page in this point of time. It seems like she's glancing over at them, like she's, Paying attention to their table, mm-hmm. like maybe spying on them. Well, we find again in the next, if we go ahead to 1789, mm-hmm. we find out that there are rumors of people meeting every hundred years. Mm-hmm. So maybe she was one of the people who started that rumor. Just the palest guy comes here every hundred years. Yeah. I know because I also come here every hundred years. How would people know that? It makes no sense. Yeah, that kind of confused me. I wasn't sure how they would catch it. It's on. probably more magical that people found out that the residue of like there's some kind of magical proof that they've been there and somebody mm. with the senses to know is like, no, every hundred years something important happens here. And then that story got out there somewhere. Hmm. Who knows? Hmm. Uh, but it could be from this woman with the mask. I don't know. Or maybe she becomes important later. And now the sign outside the place is a horse with two, I think they look like suns. I think they're sunbursts, yeah. Sunbursts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Hob is explaining um, The slavery. triangle trade is yeah. what he's explaining. Yeah, he's explaining the triangle trade. From what he's saying, it seems like it's all one ship, that one ship goes there, then there, then there. Mm-hmm. Because of the different requirements for the types of ships and stuff, uh, it was often they would head back to their home port. But oh. the, the direction of that trade certainly did go that way. And so the companies at those ports would certainly you know, take the one thing, trade them for the other thing, put them onto a then different ship, mm. which would make the trip to the other place. Right? Okay. Uh, because the... It's just terrible. The ships that they would make, and I have an image that I can show you of what these slaver ships looked like. They were specifically constructed to to hold as many humans as possible Mm. without giving a shit about them. Like, it's Mm. horrible, horrible stuff. That's despicable. Yep. And that's what Hobbes describing. But he's made a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple of things happen in this scene, right? Mm-hmm. We have the first appearance of Lady Joanna Constantine. Yeah, what an interesting coincidence of her name being yeah. so similar. And that she knows about stuff and is kind of a badass who can actually... Like, the fact that she got here on the right date 
and managed to like get the whole setup to catch them and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. The only reason she failed is because Dream is not like these other things she's used to dealing with. Now, is she a character from something? Like, she's are we not. To, she are we is. to believe she's related to Constantine to John in the Constantine. future? John Constantine. Hobbes says he knew a Jack Constantine once, and there are different Constantines through the times. Okay, that's what but, I was wondering. Is is this a reoccurring? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. But this is the first appearance of Lady Joanna. Interesting. Well, I like that there is a lady one. Mm-hmm. Her costuming, well, I know they're in England, mm-hmm. but it definitely reminds me of what you would think of as like the Southern Belle. Oh, yeah. That look, which, I mean, they were English settlers. Yep. So it made sense yeah. that, uh, that that's where their fashion would have come from at this time. When mentioning the slave trade... Hobb mentions it was him that funded Jack Hawkins, what, 200 years ago? Jack Hawkins was an English naval commander and is thought to be the pioneer of the English slave trade. Good for him. Yeah. Hooray. You'll go down forever in history. (laughs) He also mentions first the colonies, now France, uh, being 1789. The French Revolution has just begun. Ooh. The this follows the American Revolutionary War, which ran from 1775 to 1783. Mm, you know how I know stuff about that? How? Hamilton. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew stuff about it before, but when they wrap the dates, it sticks in your head a little more. Yeah. Yeah, true. Over the next page, Hobb mentions seeing King Lear, except they gave it a happy ending. Yeah. He's probably talking about the history of King Lear, which is an adaptation of King Lear by name Tate that has a happy ending. It was actually written 75 years after Shakespeare, so it's not as new to the 1789 as as this kind of makes it out to be. Okay. Uh, And it actually was performed fairly often by English actor and producer David Garrick in the Mm mid-1700s, so that's probably what he's talking about. There was a stretch of time when the audiences wanted that happy ending and mm. people would actually try to put on the original Shakespeare and the audience audiences would not like it. The Mrs. Siddons that he mentions is Sarah Siddons. She was a famous English actress of the time. She's actually known for her Lady Macbeth. Mm. Yeah. And this is where Hobb asks about Shakespeare because mm-hmm. he remembers seeing Dream walk off with him yeah. conspiratorially and he wants to know if he cut a deal with him. Yeah. Perhaps. Mm. Did he sell his soul? Nothing so crude. I really want to know what happened. Well, maybe Neil will write that story sometime. Mm. And in walks Lady Joanna Constantine. Even Hobb does not look all that worried. Well, no, he's... Right? He knows he's going to live forever. He can't die. And he's actually with the guy who let that happen. Yeah. It's kind of funny to have a giant Bowie knife to your neck like that Mm -hmm. and be smiling. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even put his tea down. Yeah. Lady Joanna Constantine actually mentions that thinks that they are the devil and the wandering Jew. Ah, bringing it back. Mentions that same legend that was brought up 400 years ago. Interesting. By Hobb himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I bet Hobb brings it up from time to time. It's since he started to live forever, and that was the first thing that he joked about when it came to living forever. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So Dream stops her very easily. Yeah, with some uh, with some of his sand. 
Yeah, he's done that before. Her kind walk amidst the flotsam of lives they have sacrificed for their own purposes, till friendless and alone they needs must make the final sacrifice. That Mm. is apparently the curse of the Constantine. That they... They walk amidst the flotsam of lives they have sacrificed for their own purposes till friendless and alone they needs must make the final sacrifice. Which is themselves. Yeah. That's the final sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very depressing. Mm-hmm. And then at the end here, the last thing that Dream says as he leaves, it is a poor thing to enslave another. I would suggest you find yourself a different line of business. That's in quotes. Oh. Right? And I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I can't figure out why. It seems like he's quoting some other, perhaps some kind of book or novel, but the only thing I can find is this book itself with hmm. that line. So maybe Neil is just trying to make it seem like these aren't Dream's words, that someone that Dream has run into along the way would have said this to him, but he doesn't feel the need to have it be someone famous. Although it does seem quite peculiar that it wouldn't be. 1889. Mmm, those coats. (laughs) Double layered. So on this first page, before he gets in, Dream meets Lushing Lou. Mm Mm-hmm. And she thought he was Bloody Jack himself. As in Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper, who killed eight sex workers in 1888 and was never caught. Lushing Lou is actually a real person of the time and is mentioned in the book London Labor and the London Poor. Oh. It's uh, an assembled bunch of newspaper articles from a paper called the Morning Chronicle of the time. Huh. And I have found that actual bit that talks about Lushing Lou. And all I can say is Neil must have read this at some point. Yeah. Because, well, I'm going to read this because it's really interesting. This goes into Lushing Lou as a person. Okay. This is uh, So this was an article in a newspaper of the time. 1889. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's actually kind of surprising how modern the writing kind of feels. I mean, it is a little more old timey. Let me read it. It's fairly long. Okay. When she was gone, I turned my attention to the woman I have before alluded to. Lushing Lou was a name euphemistic and calculated to prejudice the hearer against the possessor. I had only glanced at her before, and a careful scrutiny surprised me while it impressed me in her favor. She was ladylike in appearance, although haggard. She was not dressed in flaring colors and meretricious tawdry. Her clothes were neat and evidence taste in their selection, although they were cheap. I spoke to her. She looked up without giving me an answer, appearing much dejected. Guessing the cause, which was she had been very drunk the night before and had come to the public house to get something more, but had been unable to obtain credit, I offered her half a crown and told her to get what she liked with it. A new light came into her eyes. She thanked me and, calling the barmaid, gave her orders with a smile of triumph. Her taste was sufficiently aristocratic to prefer pale brandy to the usual beverage dispensed in gin palaces. A drain of pale, as she termed it, invigorated her. That's what she calls it in this, a drain of pale. Mm. Glass after glass was ordered till she had spent all the money I gave her. By this time, she was perfectly drunk and I had been powerless to stop her. Pressing her hand to her forehead, she exclaimed, Oh, my poor head! I asked her what was the matter with her, and for the first time she condescended or felt in the humor to speak to me. My heart's broken, she said. It has been broken since the 21st of May. I wish I was dead. I wish I was laid in my coffin. It won't be long first. I'm doing it. I've just driven another nail in, and lushing loo, as they call me, will be no loss to the society. 
Cheer up. Let's have a song. Why don't you sing, she cried, her mood having changed, as is frequently the case with habitual drunkards, and a symptom that often precedes delirium tremens. Sing, I tell you, and she began. The first I met, a coronet, was in a regiment of dragoons. I gave him what he didn't like and stole his silver spoons. There's the song she sings. When she had finished her song, the first verse of which is all I can remember, she subsided into comparative tranquility. I asked her to tell me her story. Oh, I'm a seduced milliner, she said rather impatiently. Anything you like. A milliner is a person who makes or sells women's hats. I had to look that up. It required some inducement on my part to make her speak and overcome the repugnance she seemed to feel at saying anything about herself. She was the daughter of respectable parents and at an early age had imbibed a fondness for a cousin in the army, which in the end caused her ruin. She had gone on from bad to worst after his desertion and at last found herself among the number of low transpontine women. And I had to look up transpontine. That means on or from the other side of the bridge. So I'm guessing the other side of the bridge in London, which mm. lower class, I, I, she was a daughter's respectable parents, so maybe she's from the right side. I don't know what that means exactly. I asked her why she did not enter a refuge. It might save her life. I don't wish to live, she replied. I shall soon get DT, and then I'll kill myself in a fit of madness. Lushing Lou. Is DT. person. Delirium tremens. Uh -huh. She's trying to drink herself to death. Mm. And Neil has thrown her up in this book. The other side of the bridge, is that like the wrong side of the track? I guess maybe? so. I think that's what that means. Yeah. Mm. I All I could find is other side of the bridge. Mm. She's quite the character. Mm -hmm. And across the page, Hob informs Dream that she is actually referred to as the hospital because... She spends quite a bit of time in the hospital and mm -hmm. also sends many men there because she spreads sickness to them. Yeah, I get the feeling like he thinks that's funny mm. and Dream is like, I see. Right? He doesn't. Yeah. It's not funny. No. It's kind of sad, actually. And also now that we know her actual story, the reason she's outside trying to get more and more alcohol. Because... Mm -hmm. The man she loved and gave up her respectable life for, deserted, never came back. Mm. She's got nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We also find out Haba has been coming back over the last month mm -hmm. or so. He's been dropping in on this place, so it doesn't seem unusual, the two of them meeting there. Right. So the same thing doesn't happen. He also mentions a fellow bloke who calls himself Blood. He's met a half dozen times. Mm -hmm. That's talking about Jason Blood. Jason That's Blood. Jason Blood. You laughed the last time I mentioned him. Oh. He's the human host of Etrigan. Oh, okay. I keep forgetting. Yeah. He was uh, just a regular common peasant, apparently, who Merlin used to tie Etrigan to a human soul to, like, control it somehow. At this time, Blood is an amnesiac, so he's losing his memory. He doesn't know that he's possessed by Etrigan at this time, mm -hmm. and he doesn't know he's immortal. I feel like... Maybe I've said this already now that mm -hmm. I've already heard of Jason Blood, but having a name like Blood is a lot <laughs> like living in an anime universe and having pink hair. You know, yeah. something is going to happen to you. Yeah. You're going to get mystical moon powers or something. Yeah. And yeah. if your last name is Blood yeah. and you live in this kind of world, you're going to have a demon tied to you or something <laughs> because a wizard decided that was the right thing to do. You know, just... 
I think parents. I think his name Blood actually comes from the they like when he first got Etrigan bound into him. Mm. I think his body killed his family, and they found him covered in blood. So they called him Jason of the Blood or something like that. Oh, so he was originally like Jason of the last house on the the left hill people. Yeah. You know, Mole Man Jason. He, it was so long ago. There were no other Jasons. You know, Jason. There's not enough people that we need last names yet. Mm, okay. We also hear about Mad Hetty again. Yeah. Been there 120 years at least, to my knowledge. <laughs> mm, and she isn't going to die. And so this is the point when Hob suddenly cares about Dream. <laughs> It's like he well, stops talking about himself and he decides to get a little further well, into Well, right before this. that, he mentions the slave trade. Yes. Right. Um, he does feel, well, it's it's in his sort of monologue about what what he's come to think of the world. And so yeah. he, he feels bad, like he can't take back what he did to all those people and, you know, what happened as a result of the slave trade. He can't change. Mm-hmm. and But people fundamentally don't change. And so he's questioning... Why Dream made him be without death Yeah, in the first place. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't think that it was out of a curiosity to watch a person, to see what happens to a person when they don't die. Because now he knows that he's not the only one. There's been, there are plenty mm-hmm. of other people that Dream could have studied to see. And so he tells Dream, I think that you just wanted a friend. And Dream gets really offended. Yeah. <laughs> so offended it's obviously true. Yeah. Right? You like me. Yeah. No, I don't. Do not. He doesn't deny it either. It's just you dare, you dare imply hmm. that one of my kind might need companionship. You dare to call me lonely? Hmm. That's not a denial, dude. That's hmm. not, that's not, I'm not. That's not, no, that's not what it is. I think Dream even is okay with knowing like that that's what it is. He's just like you don't say it. Mm-hmm. Don't there's rules. Yeah, I follow the rules. Endless aren't friends with mortals, so whatever this is, it can't be that. Mm-hmm. But then, I guess a hundred years later, nineteen eighty nine, next page over. Well, I think though also this kind of speaks to a class structure that we don't really see these days. Um, mm-hmm. a class structure where inherently you had this kind of, in this society, you had these classes of, you know, we are the aristocratic class, we are the merchant class, we are the serving class, we are, you know, all of those. And I think that that has been shown in each of these different, um, periods of time. They really explore how those classes change the fact that at a certain point, mobility is possible for uh, Hob and how he goes from the different, you know, what he's a warrior to being, you know, a businessman, a pauper, and now he seems like he's a gentleman again, and and all of that, and all all along, Dream has always been dressed like the richest, mm-hmm. right? He's always seems to be in the finest of clothing, and so the status between the two characters, even though, you know, it appears that they're at least relatively equal, they're not equals. Mm-hmm. They're at meeting, they're not equals. So in this, the idea that, yeah, that, that this person who is 
of a lesser status than him would openly question him in that way and claim that they have that equalness of friends would seem off-putting. So then when you fast forward 100 years where that kind of class system has been for the most part fairly dismantled, there isn't so much of that servant-master kind of relationship anymore, then it is okay that they would be friends. Like dreams, ideas of how societies are structured and work also evolves with ours perhaps um, i guess my theory you think you think our our society is becoming less caste driven uh kind of it's um i've heard it sort of described one of the better examples of it is if you look at the story of Lord of the Rings, the relationship between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo. People mm-hmm. say all the time, they say that, that's a, that that would be like a queer relationship because of how devoted Sam is to Frodo. And But that's because these days, and, and first of all, you're totally welcome to consider Sam to be gay if you want when you read that story or however you want to see their relationship. That's totally up to you as the reader to interpret that however you want. And I'm all for interpreting things as queer when you want them to be. But if you look at it through the lens in which Tolkien was writing it and about kind of the period of time he was romanticizing um, when writing that fantasy, there was this social structure that existed between this kind of romanticized idea between the servant and the master, not in like a slave way, but just that there were people who were considered just naturally better, who were kind of like Frodo's class of people, who had people who just naturally kind of worked for them like Sam does and that their relationship where Sam is so devoted to Frodo just made sense in the context of how Tolkien was writing it and it kind of I think could be seen maybe in this story where that's sort of the way that things would work between perhaps Dream and Hob to a certain sense and so then when you do get to this current idea of it they could actually be friends because it's gotten to a time where where that idea of inherited class is more broken down, especially with the idea of like the American dream and whatnot, even though it it is still kind of, it's inherited, mm-hmm. it's not a fair system. The idea is you could still, you could come up from being the poorest of the poor and deserve to be in this other well, class. I think even 200 years later, Hobb has had the queen herself staying at his house. Mm-hmm. He's already risen to be up to hang around with royalty and enough to be friendly with royalty. But not... That soon. I But not dream. Not with the endless. I, I don't think that their caste differences matter so much. Because hmm. um, I think that they're fairly quickly, if you look even at 1789, when they meet Lady Joanna Constantine, they're wearing basically the identical clothes. Dreams are black with the purple and he's got his gem in the middle. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they're wearing pretty much the same clothing together. They're very similarly ranked, and they've still got another 200 years to go before Dream admits that they're friendly. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and I th- and what you're saying about class differences is totally accurate. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's what's going on here. Okay. I, I think getting stuck in a cage for 70 years hmm. out of the 100 that he's been gone. Oh, yeah, and I mean, they've evolved. Each of the characters have evolved, I think that it it is true that 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 could be that is a part of Dream's journey, but I think it's also, I think it also does line up with how times have changed, hmm. and how a lot of the time that he spent in captivity, you know, the culture changed as well. And I do think that to a certain degree, Dream 
adapts to the culture that humanity is in around him as he goes forward. Uh, I think he does, yeah. His clothing in this final page, much more casual. Mm-hmm. Right? He's got a black t-shirt on. While the, the jacket on top might be still kind of formal or on top of something formal, he's definitely wearing a black shirt and kind of has punk hair. Mm-hmm. So he's, yeah, not as formal as he has been in the previous one. So something has certainly changed big time. Mm-hmm. However, the commentary in the background hasn't. Thatcher's no. bloody poll tax, there's going to be a revolution if they push that through, right? The Peasants' Revolt, 1389, people were talking about that. Mm-hmm. I see it, the labor movement died with the miners' strike. All the signs are there in the Bible, it'll be the end of the world very soon. We already had people saying there's two popes fighting, so that's <laughs> going to be, it's the end times. Yeah. Right? Of course, AIDS isn't God's way of punishing people, Darren. And then there's the same joke still sticking around, upper dress, and she says, are you hunting for rabbits again, vicar? <laughs> Right from the beginning. The theme of this, well, there seems to be two themes. One is that people don't change. Yeah. Right? Because so much doesn't change. Hob never wants death. The humanity around doesn't really change that much as much as the trappings do, the technology does, the life. Neil Gaiman seems to definitely think that technology has made our life better. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think he's absolutely right. Chimneys are better than braziers and holes in the wall. Yeah. Right. White bread that is readily available to all people is better than brown bread and white bread only for royalty. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. The oil lamps are better than the other things. Electric is better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Neil really tries to push that. I think there's also a lot to be seen in in this uh, final shot of the whole room that are references mm-hmm. throughout the story as well, um, such as the bottom right corner of the large panel. There's a couple. Um, who are both black, who are sitting mm-hmm. at the table, and they're playing cards. Right. And Hobb mentioned earlier in the story, in the first hundred years, or second hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, after he becomes immortal, that playing cards are a thing. Yeah. And like, I think that's an interesting reference, that not only is he finally sharing a space that's not segregated in any way, <laughs> but also that they're playing cards. Yeah, that's a good point. This is the first time that it would be not, not be segregated. Wow. And the cards are still there. Yeah, nothing changes, mm-hmm. right? Once you introduce something that works, it sticks around until something better shows up. Yeah. Technology. So now they'd be sitting there playing Pokemon. Yeah. Although I think we're guessing it would be 2089. I don't know what they'll be sitting at a table playing in 2089. So up next, collectors. What is your prediction? Collectors. Well, I don't... So we know what's happened in the previous one. This yeah. is the one that's going to actually take off. Yeah, this was a standalone. So this is yeah. g- going back to where the story ended last time. And we have the the hotel or motel. And there's the convention, uh, the serial convention. Mm-hmm. And so in line with how serial c- killers collect something from their... You know, they keep trophies I think that's what that's in reference to. Okay. Um, I think it's about the serial killer convention and what's going to happen there. And that they, I think maybe in the story, we'll meet a variety of serial killers and find out what each of them collects. Maybe that will be a part of it. And how is it all going to come around? We've got the Corinthian has Jed. Mm-hmm. And Rose is heading to go pick him up, but and then got stuck at the hotel that and the serial conventions who in. Who's she with? She's with. Uh, she's with 
Gilbert? Uh, Gilbert. Which is with Gilbert. Mm-hmm. I hope it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But I'm a little worried that Gilbert is going to make a hero's sacrifice mm. in this story to save Jed and uh, mm. and Rose. Okay. I'm worried about that. But I think that might be what happens. Okay. Well, we'll have to find out about the bravery of Gilbert. Yeah. Next issue. Mm-hmm. You've been dreaming of the Sandman, issue 13, Men of Good Fortune. For show notes, visit thedreaming.modeofdust.com. Support future episodes at patreon.com slash thedreaming. Like us on Facebook. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast app, including Google Play Music and iTunes. Our theme music is Oneri by Kai Engel. Hear more at kaiengel.bandcamp.com. The Dreaming was recorded in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Kikate, and tsleil Nations. I'm Sasha Smulders. Thanks for listening. Time to wake up. <laughs>